Magnus Halvorsen started 2020 Bulkers to create value for customers and investors through safe and reliable operations of a top modern fleet bought at the right price at the right time. In this episode, we cover the initial idea behind the company and its unique features, Magnus' view on the dry bulk market today and the predictions ahead, his views on China, Brazil and the US, why he has invested in esports and the biggest lessons learned so far, and the future of shipping when it comes to regulations, technology, and growth. Let's start the show. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 15 markets today and plan to add more over time. They always prioritize requested companies which users can easily do in the app. Users can also leave reactions while listening to the conference calls to make their voice heard. So check out Quarter. Q-U-A-R-T-R. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Welcome back, everyone. I'm super excited to have Magnus joining for a second time. And Magnus, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having us for the second time, Christopher. It's nice to be here. Let's go back or let's go back to to the idea for people who haven't heard the first episode about the company, which, in my opinion, seems it was founded on this great opportunity and even more like a finance opportunity or than a, more than a shipping opportunity. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, for, for those who don't follow the shipping markets, um, I mean, this is a market where you essentially are involved, depending on what type of shipping you are in, in transporting 90% of, of all the goods in the world. So it's, it's, uh, it's a business that's critical for, for cargo flow. And, 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 and in that sense, everyone um, is, is subject to what goes on without really knowing what, what, what is going on. Um, I, th- I think it's a highly cyclical business where if you invest at the right time, uh, historically, you've been able to make a lot of money for your shareholders. And unfortunately, if you get it wrong, there's a lot of companies that have gone bust. And I think um, what prompted us to start this company in 2017 was um, the market had been through a downturn, which at the time had lasted for maybe eight years, uh, where the value of the type of ships that we have had dropped from, call it $180 million. uh, And we uh, saw an opportunity to order these ships uh, at the lowest price ever for uh, around $46.5 million. Um, so we have a fleet of so-called Newcastle Max. It's the most modern fleet of any listed rival company in the world. Um, we um, have a ship type that's slightly larger than the typical ship they compete with, a cape size. 
which combined with the fact that they're using less fuel means we are earning a significant premium of around 35% to standard type Cape size. Um, and then we saw that if you're able, going to be able to, to make a good return in this market, it's critical to build a lean organization with a low cash break even. So we have only four people, um, in addition to myself, employed in the company, um, which means we have low GNA costs. We have um, an attractive financing package, which we're uh, just in the process of refinancing now, reducing the cost of our bank debt from 250 to 210 basis points. And all of this gives us um, a cash break even um, uh, for GNA, OPEX and debt service of around 14,500 a day. And the business idea is quite simple. We ordered at the historical low, and then we're going to stay disciplined and pay out the money as we earn it. Um, today, the ships that we have are earning approximately $45,000 a day in the spot market. So if you look between forty-five dollars and, and $14,000, there's a lot of cash flow. And we pay that out on a monthly basis. And I think even if this company hasn't been in existence for that long, we got the last ship delivered. Because it takes about two years from the time you order to, to the time you get your first ship. The last ship we got delivered in, in June last year. We've already paid back close to 50% of the equity that was put into the company. So 48% of what's been invested here is already paid out back to the shareholders. And uh, of course, we're in a market that's fairly volatile, like most shipping. But take, for instance, um, October dividend, um, which um, will be paid out uh, within a few days. Uh, we declared 49 cents per share. I mean, I'm not saying you should, but if you annualize that, that's a run rate yield of 50%. So it kind of shows you that uh, when the market's good, we can create a very, very good return. And I, I think what we wanted to do different with this company than a lot of our competitors um, is to say that we, we are happy to invest at a point and then do nothing from there other than running the ships as well as we can. We don't need to be a bigger company. We don't need to have a growth strategy. Um, it doesn't create any value in itself. And I think one of the things we did um, when, when we started this was to look at the previous cycles because it's, it's quite scary. If you invested in, I guess, the average tribal company in 2002, 2003, you've made a lot of money up until 2008, 2009. And then the majority of those companies, uh, the equity is completely diluted from um, refinancings and, 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 and equity offerings. And I think the reason is not because the drywall business is a bad business, but you need to manage risk. And what you cannot do is to keep on buying ships as you know the rates get better because you're going to have to pay more for the ships. The, you have to resist the temptation that the banks will actually come and give you cheaper financing and they'll give you more financing when the ships are more expensive. So that's why we wrote down a couple of simple rules when we, we created the company and, and we've stuck to them. Um, and it's, of course, even if we, we had the plan, we've had some curveballs along the way. I mean, we, uh, we came into 2020 quite positive on the market and then COVID hit, uh, which, of course, became an, a stress test for the whole idea. Um, uh, we, what we did, we luckily had our low cash break even, which I talked about. 
And uh, we decided to take cover on, on six of our eight ships for the balance of the air. So we were the only drivable company in the world, to my knowledge, that's listed. I'm not talking about the private companies that did not lose money any single quarter last year. So we do have a, we're in it for the upside, but we also have a platform that can take bad markets. And we think about managing risk. Uh, and we also, which I think is a benefit of, of only having eight chips, we're able to turn around. If something unforeseen happens, we can turn around, we can take over. Um, and, and that's what we did. That's a, that's a perfect summary. Since we talked, uh, I think it is pretty exact one year ago. What has surprised you the most during this year? Any particular events or something like that? No, I think we, we have been and we still are positive to the market, but I think the market's been uh, stronger this year than uh, than we would have thought. I mean, we, we've had times where standard Cape size have been making 85,000, then we're making kind of 110, 120,000, again, against that 14,000 cash break even. So uh, I think... Uh, Although we were positive, we didn't expect that uh, that the market could get that strong. But that just shows you that we're in a fundamentally uh, tighter market. Uh, I think the second thing which has been a surprise is um, you know, the amount of cold trade that's been going on. Uh, of course, we the world is on a, a, a joint mission to decarbonize, and you know, uh, there's clearly. A lot more investments going into uh, renewables relative to what we've seen in the past. And, and I think if you ask me in January, I would say you know, uh, I was probably not as negative as everyone else, but I, I would say that coal is going to go down as part of the energy mix. There will still be some growth because there's still um, coal plants being built out in Southeast Asia, in China. Uh, but what happened was essentially... Uh, we've had an energy shortage and um, particularly uh, LNG prices have spiked through the roof. So we've seen uh, European utilities switching from, from gas to coal. Um, and we're not even into the full winter season. So it, it's still an interesting time where um, China, who's hugely reliant on coal, they're at around 15 days of consumption on the large power plants. They're typically at 20, 25 this time of year. Uh, India has been down at critically low levels. So net-net, we've seen the coal trades grow by around 7% this year. Uh, and that's something I think people didn't expect. I'll, I'll just make a note also that I, I talk a lot about coal now. We don't actually transport a lot of coal, but we compete with standard Cape size ships that do. I think less than 5% of our cargoes, around 5% since we started, has been, been coal. But that impacts the market um, a lot. Um, and I think another, if not surprise, kind of a surprise is as the market got as good as it got, usually you'd have seen a lot more ordering. So when people see that earnings are there, they tend to order more ships and they never learn. Um, I think it was maybe more luck than anything that the container market took off nine months ahead of the bulker market. Uh, and there's been a mass of ordering in containers, which has booked up all the yard slots. Uh, so if you went to order a dry bulk vessel today, a large dry bulk vessel like we have, uh, you can hardly get the delivery within 2024. 
So the fact that the same year we have ships at times earning 110,000 a day and no one ordering ships because of the long delivery times and, and the arch slots, I think that's that's something I wouldn't have predicted. How easy is it to quickly start a new yard? Because we often talk about that the capacity at the yards, and there are a couple of famous ones or a lot of famous ones, but just in, in general, how hard is it to just start a new yard if you see that you can have a lot of orders coming in? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think over time, if 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 the market gets tight and pricing is there, you know, you will see capacity added. But if you look at the last upturn from 04 to 08, 09, a lot of greenfield yards were built in China. I mean, yards that literally did not exist were taking orders. Um, but a lot of those blew up as well. And uh, and the financial institutions which have given the refund guarantees were the ones that were left with the bills. So since then, I think you've seen a consolidation of the Chinese yard industry. The um, state groups are now consolidated to one. And effectively, uh, credit support uh, through the banks giving refund guarantees are only given to a smaller amount of yards. So I've seen some different numbers, but it's estimated that uh, Chinese yard capacity is probably 30% lower now than it was at the previous peak. Um, The other thing that's happened is even if new building prices have gone up a lot, um, the arts are still not making a decent margin. It's not a very profitable business because they, they've only been able to take prices up with this kind of cost inflation, which is quite high on, on labor in, in China these days, uh, the increase in steel prices. And then um, the yuan has, um, has strengthened against the dollar. Um, so I, I think that... You know, you could potentially see new capacity added, but not over the next couple of years. And and I've been traveling around in some of these areas where there are yards, and it's not like they're all sitting there and are ready to be turned off, uh, turned on. You know, a lot of them have been rezoned for residential purposes, and the capacity that was there literally is not there anymore. So, so that's probably the thing, not only for dry bulk, but for for a lot of shipping in general that makes me the most positive is. Uh, the order books are historically low in certain segments. For for our segments, it, uh, it's around six six and a half percent. There's nothing really you can do about it for the next couple of years. Um, so we, we, we'll we'll see what happens. Korea really isn't competitive for the type of ships that we are building. Japan builds much less in volume, and they typically serve domestic market. Uh, so I'm I'm extremely positive on the supply side outlook for the next couple of years. And maybe in the same argument, you can just add on the technology piece as well, just to get the full closure on that one. Absolutely. So um, the IMO has a goal to decarbonize um, uh, by the carbon intensity, not not the actual emissions, by 40% from a baseline in 08 to 2030. Um, and we are getting some new rules implemented uh, January 2023 called EEXI and CII, which regulates the amount of CO2 you can uh, emit per, per ton of, of, of goods transported. Um, so everyone understands that we, we need to decarbonize, but uh, it's, it's not a straightforward um, solution how to do it. Um, you, of course, have LNG, which I think will play an important role, but it's also a significant investment. Our ships today, if you were to order them, 
um, for delivery in late 2024, probably cost you $67 million. Ordering the same ship with LNG is probably $82 million. Um, and um, uh, then, of course, uh, on, on energy parity, there's a bit of fuel saving with LNG. But today, because of these dislocations in, uh, in energy markets, LNG is a lot more expensive than traditional fuel. So uh, although it might be the right thing to do, it's, 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 it's not obvious economically. And then people talk about ammonia and hydrogen. We think it's going to be a long time. Uh, before that's a, a reliable solution. Um, and also you need the bunkering infrastructure. So you're sort of in limbo where even if you are a ship owner who wanted to order something uh, and have a yard slot, um, if you're going to get the ship two, three years out and it's going to live for 20, 25 years, hopefully, you want to make sure you get it right. So we actually feel quite good about where we are having the most modern of, uh, uh, or I guess, the, the old uh, diesel-based engines. Um, so we, we are kind of 20% better on emission than the standard Cape size, which I like to, to, to reference as the legacy fleet. Um, we've actually done a study with, the, um, uh, with our class uh, agency, ABS, suggesting we're in the top 8% percentile. Um, and there will be a renewal of the fleet. There will be, you know, new fuel technologies, but it's going to be a long transition. It's it's a market with seventeen hundred and fifty ships. There's an order book of a hundred today, and you could probably go out and order maximum of ten ships that would come by by twenty twenty four. So I think where you really uh, want to be careful, in my opinion, is if you own older, less fuel efficient ships because they will have regulations that they might struggle to meet. Uh, and I think there will be a, a two-tier market uh, or several tier markets, depending on your carbon footprint uh, developing, where, where the more efficient ships will be favored by the large charters who are actually putting in place their own ambitions that are stricter or more ambitious than the, the IMO. Uh, and you should also get paid more. So that's why we are actually Right now, we're trying not to fix ships beyond, much beyond January 1st, 2023, because we think the relative value of our ship to a legacy standard cape size is going to be greater. Uh, that's super interesting. I think in technology, you often talk about the, uh, you have one idea that it's it's great to be the first mover, but you have an un, uh, other argument that it's great to be the last mover to understand the market and not get caught in, in betting on the, on the wrong technology. But... Just to, to add on that, um, that argument, how will this play out if you look at it from a game theory perspective? Because everybody's on the fence, don't know which technology they're going to bet on. And we know that shipping is very cyclical, it goes up and down. So if you have to forecast the next 5, 10, 15 years, how will this play out in the end? I don't. I th I think you need some greater incentives uh, for, for change and they need to be financial. So... I think we need, and I think you will get the carbon tax, and I think it needs to be pretty high to really make a difference. Um, because as I said, LNG, you're maybe cutting 20% uh, CO2 compared to what we have, but we again are 20% better than, uh, than a Baltic index type, uh, type case size. So you, you need to punish uh, the ones that are are, are less environmentally friendly and, and you need to stimulate um, financially those who, who want to take the next step. I think LNG, you know, we know it works. 
uh, there is bunkering infrastructure out there. So I think that will play a very important role for the next couple of years. Um, uh, I am not a technical expert, but I'm lucky to have some technical experts around me. Um, and I'm sure there will be prototypes, you know, much before that. But I think it's going to take uh, uh, five, probably closer to 10 years before re really um, ammon and these things be become uh, a reliable solution when you have actual bunkering infrastructure in place. If you if you had to be very honest now, are you very happy that you have a very simple business case that you don't have to take those decisions or no? I, I actually because it's 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 uh, you have to have a, like, like uh, we set up a plan and we're trading the plan, and uh, I think we didn't make the plan by accident. We. Uh, we studied historical cycles, uh, and of course, history oftentimes rhymes in cyclical industries. It's it's never exactly the same. Um, but I, I think the fact that you know there were times we started ordering these ships at at forty six and a half million, and you know we had chances to order more ships and we were offered good slots and everything. And of course, they were tempting, but just to say no, we don't do that. We, we stick to the plan. I think when we got into COVID, for instance, you know, we were, we were quite happy that we then had everything delivered uh, more or less. And, and, and we had the chartering structure in place where we could convert to fixed rates, etc. Um, so we um, no, we, we like the way we run our business. Um, and, and I think also... Uh, the stock market seems to appreciate it. You know, there's been times where we've been priced significantly higher than other companies on a asset value basis. Um, uh, and I don't see that as a problem. I see that more as an endorsement that people like the transparency. And they like the fact that they get the cash flow out. Next topic, uh, we have to talk about China. Um, there's a couple of uh, keywords I would like you to to go through. We have the real estate market, of course, that's relevant, some say, and we have the Olympic blue skies. But maybe just in general, what do you think is the hardest thing to predict about China that concerns your shipping industry or shipping business? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about China, but I'll say firstly, the, the most difficult thing to predict uh, in shipping overall is the demand side. Um, and that's why I'm so focused on the supply side, because if you look at dry bulk, you know, you've had growth in demand 28 of the last 30 years. It's grown by 4% on average. That's a pretty good record. And, and it means that demand has not been the problem. Um, so number one, very more about supply than demand. And then I'll, and I'm not trying to get away from the China question. So then, then China, of course, is very important for our markets. They, uh, consume around 50% of the world steel. And, and of course, the, the real estate sector is a, a big driver or the property sector driver of that. Um, I think if you if you look at China over the last 11, 12 years, you know, uh, with, the, with quite a lot of regularity, there has been cycles of uh, stimulus, then stepping back, stimulus, stepping back. And every time they step back a bit, you know, you get all these uh, reports and, and, and media articles about now, now China is blowing up. I don't believe in that. Um, I think the Chinese are very smart and I think they understand that what they do, of course, 
uh, has an impact on their domestic economy, but but also on, on commodity prices, being such a big consumer. So if they were giving full throttle all the time, uh, you would have massive inflation on, um, uh, on commodity prices. Uh, if we go back to, to COVID, I mean, China were the first out to to really start stimulating infrastructure spending um, and also the property markets, which meant you saw a recovery there before uh, every other part of the world. There was actually a slowdown in stimulus during during the first half of the year. Um, and if you look at um, the steel production, which has been uh, falling year on year now for, I guess, uh, at least five months, um, I think that's uh, a function of, of at least three things. One is you've had um, uh, less stimulus during the first half of the year. Typically, there's a lag of four, five, six months before a change in the policy and, and when you see it in, in the actual activity. Um, secondly, there is a power crisis ongoing in China. There is not enough power. And, and we're seeing shipyards, for instance. A lot of them are declaring force majeure to their clients. They're only operating five days a week as compared to seven days a week. And of course, this is impacting the steel industry. And I think lastly, you have um, this blue sky policy where it could be a coincidence, but uh, for the 28 cities that have a, a, a curb on, on, on steel production now, it ends March 15th. Uh, you have the Olympics, then you have the Paralympics ending March 13. So two days after all the cameras are turned off, uh, the restrictions go off. Um, so I think that right now you are actually seeing stimulus picking up again. There's been lots of articles this last week alone. You've seen um, an uptick in uh, the special infrastructure bond issuances. Uh, those would typically then start to, to have some real effect towards the end of Q1. Of course, we have winter, which is going to be tough given the, the level of uh, or the low level of cold they have. Um, but I think as winter passes, you're probably going to see a ramp up in industrial activity. Uh, and then, yeah, the, at least as it is now, unless they change it, the, the production curbs in 28 cities for steel, they will end on, on March 15th. So I think we, we are seeing uh, the contours of a, of a new, new cycle. When it comes to the property market, um, same thing there. I mean, they've, um, they've actually sent out, if you look in the media the last couple of days, there's been a lot of articles about how the banks need to stimulate and, and loosen credit to the property companies again. Um, I think what we've seen with Evergrande and some other companies um, is not an attempt to, uh, to kill the property market. But if you read the Chinese five-year plan, there's a lot of talk about common prosperity. And I think it's, uh, of course, and you've seen this in other industries as well with Alibaba and others, you've seen some um, aggressive and successful businessmen being able to, or women being able to amass a lot of wealth. Um, and it seems to me that China are kind of trying to bring some of them back in line. Um, uh, but the, the big goal they have is common prosperity. And in order to have that, you need to continue um, the urbanization uh, and you need good housing and also trying to save a lot in property. Uh, so killing the property market would create too much instability. Uh, so I, I think that's actually going to be uh, okay again. But it's they 
Chinese economy is a fine-tuned machine. They they can stimulate it, they can step back and, and sort of keep it in the direction and on the growth path they, they like. Um, that being said, I think for our market, you also uh, don't forget what's going on in the other half. You know, China is the most important, they're 50% of steel demand. Uh, that means there's 50% of other places as well. And there's been a lot of stimulus announced um, in, in other countries when it comes to infrastructure packages. I think one of the differences is in China, when you announce uh, a stimulus initiative, it goes very quickly before it's put into effect. When you pass a $1.2 trillion bill in the US, they don't have the shovel-ready projects there. So I think you're going to see um, higher than, uh, than what we've seen steel demand in, in the rest of the world for a couple of years. But I think the stimulus, it's, it's got a longer fuse. It's, it's taking a little bit longer to work and it's working over a bit longer time. Very interesting. If you had to create a very bearish scenario for the market, do you have to bring a country like Brazil into that argument or what's the most bearish scenario you can, you can come up with? Um, of course, I could be wrong in everything I said, then China crashes. So that's a bearish scenario. Um, but that, that's not what we believe in. Um, uh, and, and of course, a crash in the general world economy. Um, I think aside from that, you're, you're on to it because one of the interesting things in our markets, getting back to the micro bit, we have very low fleet growth. And we have a change in trade patterns, uh, which is driven by Brazil getting back on, uh, on, on stream after the dam accident two years ago. So around 800 million tons of iron ore every year goes from Australia and just under 400 from Brazil. If you look at Vale, the biggest producer in Brazil, which does around 90% of the volumes, um, they are guiding for capacity uh, year-end 2022, um, we have said between 380 and 400 million tons. They're probably going to do 310 million tons this year. And each ton incrementally you take out of Brazil tends to require three times the shipping capacity or the shipping intensity of one ton from Australia because of the differences. So even in the market that's pretty flat demand-wise, I think if you keep on having Brazil ramping up, uh, that itself is going to have a positive effect on the market. Um, so, of course, that also means it's a risk if, 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 they, uh, if they have a problem with the integrity of one of their facilities and, and they have to take production down again, that, that could hurt us. Um, and then I think also, of course, one thing that's helping the market a bit today um, is uh, COVID and, and the, the logistical problems through congestion. Um, so if, if you saw a situation where kind of congestion came down to very low levels and, and all the value chains were working perfectly again, crew changes, everything like that, I think that would effectively add supply. But I also think it's a bit exaggerated because we are the highest levels we've seen on congestion this year. Uh, they are uh, in line with the highest levels we saw in 2019. So it's not like we're in an environment this year which we never saw before COVID. But I think that's that's actually one of the things that, that impacts spot rates a bit uh, week to week. We, we had the correction now in Cape size rates from, as I said, 86,000 down to, to 33 or so today. Uh, and part of that has been driven by an unwinding congestion. But then we hit sort of low end of the range. We're moving up a bit again and rates are moving up a bit again. 
Just a final point on risk factors. Uh, there's a lot of talk right now about the weather and the storms, etc. Are those accidents or incidents just considered as noise or is it actually have a large effect could have? And they can have a large effect. I mean, if, if you are in a market that's fundamentally out of balance, these things will not make a great market. But where we are now, uh, where I think the market is fairly balanced, they can they can create spikes or they can create good markets in, in seasonally weak times. Um, last year, you know, in dry bulk, there's a paper market where you can essentially buy and sell freights forward. So around this time, I mean, all the way up to early December, you could buy the first quarter at 9,000. So that's kind of what the paper market said the first quarter of Cape size would be. Then you had La Nina and a very cold winter, which led to a lot of ice in China, a lot of waiting time. Uh, it's probably the key factor why rates ended averaging almost double that, just under 20,000. Um, and I think actually now um, it seems that La Nina actually right now has been declared in China. So if we have another cold winter, I think we could have some disruptions that are positive for our market because they increase waiting time. Makes sense. Uh, let's go back to, to your company. Uh, obviously, you talked about it. You talked about the idea, the simplicity, the discipline. Let's go into the end game. I know that you can't say exactly how the end game will look, but you have been open about that there are some very likely scenarios, but when they happen, it's impossible to say because there has to be a buyer and a seller. Yeah, but we don't need the buyer. Um, that has never been, the, the plan has never been to need an exit. Uh, and I think that's back to, to kind of studying the cycles over time. Of course, if you have a ship that lives for 20, 25 years, uh, you will have some good markets and bad markets. But the key is to have a platform where you live well through the bad times, because then you're there to, to harvest the good markets. So this company is literally set up to be able to, to just run and take out the cash until the ships are ready for scrap. Uh, and as I said, we, we've already paid back 50% or 48% of, uh, of the money that's put into the company. Um, and I think that's a good position to be in to, to say that we're not kind of actively looking for someone to come and take us out. Of course, if someone comes one day at a good price for the whole company or for certain ships, we're more than happy to do that. We are not proud to be a ship owners or be, run a shipping company. We, we, we see this as, a, as an investment. And if we think it's better one day to sell and, and do something else, then we'll do it. Yeah, because, because that was the reason why I used it sort of like a told uh, people that this was more could be looked at as a finance play, because just to emphasize what you're saying, it's not like you had a dream of being a ship owner the rest of your life. This is a great investment opportunity and you're happy to take it just to people understand the context of the company. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I must say I, I enjoy being in shipping. It's, it's a fun market and there's lots of fun people and we have great colleagues uh, running this company and we, you, you work with some fantastic companies as customers. So, so that's enjoyable. Um, but we, uh, we set the company up because we thought it was a good risk reward and we want to maintain that by sticking to the plan as we discussed. And then if there's a time to sell, we will sell um, if, if we think that's right. Right now, it's actually first time in a while where ships are being sold more expensive in the secondary market than, than they are in the stock market. 
Um, there's been very few transactions for our type of ships, modern Newcastle Max, but there were just two ships sold about a week ago that were about as old as our average fleet for 65 million. If you're buying our shares today, you're paying around 61 million in the stock market. So, so there is a gap there, and, and maybe someone sees that opportunity and, and comes and, and, and tries to buy, but who knows? In the meantime, we're happy to just run it and pay out the cash. Uh, talking about great investment opportunities, what is your relationship with gaming? <laughs> with gaming? Uh, no, I, I am the chairman of, uh, uh, of what started out as an esports company. Um, and it, it took me a bit of time to, to understand that. But, uh, you know, I, I have children myself as well. And what you see is that all young people, I mean, kids, but also youth and young adults, uh, more of them than, than not have a relationship to gaming. Uh, not for the sake of, of watching esports necessarily. Some of them do, but it's it's what people do. And, and, and it's a thing they're social around. Um, so I think what you're alluding to is I'm uh, I'm the chairman of of, a, of an esports um, club, uh, which has just been rebranded Zero Zero Nation from Nordavin. We're trying to create something that goes a lot beyond gaming and esports as well. And I think we were very lucky in uh, after we did a fundraising and a listing of the company about a year ago. We came in touch with a team that had been quite central in building um, maybe one of the most known uh, esports franchises in the world called Face Clan, which actually now is, is IPOing through a SPAC in the US at a valuation of $650 million. And I think what, what we saw that they had managed to do is to build a company with gaming and esports at the core, but also bringing in um, other elements that youth and, and young adults are, are, are interested in. So music, sports, fashion, art. And I think the whole idea, because we were fascinated. Turula Trem gave the first seed money to Noravin, as it was called, after we had been tipped off by, by US investor. We know that, that here's a market that's growing. There's half a million fans, half a billion fans, you know, they sell out Madison Square Garden, you know, there's some price money. So it was easy to be intrigued, but it wasn't clear to me to begin with what is the actual business model? How are you going to make money? And, and it's clear that just having a good esports team, that is not a moneymaker. Um, firstly, I mean, the players take a lot of, uh, of most of the winnings. Uh, it's all about the engagement you can create through... Uh, through this content, through this entertainment, which is gaming and esports, if you can tie it in with the other things, um, you, you're able to reach what I think advertisers call the unreachables, the people between 15 and 35, because they don't look at uh, regular linear TV. They, they don't read uh, uh, most of the online newspapers where, where people tend to advertise. You have to be on their platforms, which are Twitch, which are YouTube, which are Discord. And um, I think what we're seeing now, we, we, we have a couple of commercial partnerships. You know, DMB, the Norwegian bank, was, uh, was quite brave. Uh, I think the first bank in Western Europe to come in and sponsor an esports organization. We've been working with them for two years. And, and now we're, uh, we're lining up a lot of other uh, very interesting commercial sponsorships. 
but we're also doing more for them. We're helping them engage with their target group. So like for Xbox now, uh, who just launched a new video game, Forza, it's a car game. They are partner, they give us a budget. We, um, we've, we've actually taken in people who comes from the um, um, other media industry. I have a guy called uh, Christian Ås who, who built a television part of Tri in here in Norway. So then, you know, we go in, we, they, they create basically the campaign without an agency. Uh, the idea, they shoot the film, they, they put it out through their channels. And we're getting massive endorsements from, uh, you know, global head of marketing at Xbox. And together with that, because we have musicians that are affiliated, uh, you know, we, uh, we, we, we did a song, uh, we launched a, a music video with uh, Amanda Delara, if, if the musicians might know her, which is now, I think, last time I checked on track to play 200 times on the thousand times on Spotify the first week. So it's all about creating an engaging community and then, um, you know, monetizing that through this, this audience. Um, and it's fun for a guy that I'm not even on Facebook or Instagram to... <laughs> Uh, so I, I know my limitations, but 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 I, I I think it's been fun to get to you know know all these people who are at the cutting edge, I guess, of uh, what goes on in technology and uh, in, in youth culture, and and I think we're starting to get it into a structure where commercially it, it can actually become a business that makes money. That's super interesting and fascinating to hear uh, about. But you said you're the chairman, so. I mean, I know a lot of companies that would love to have you on, on their board. So the question is, what makes you want to get involved either in a company or a restaurant or whatever? Is it just your passion or is it through relationships or is it, uh, or is it serendipity and timing? It's a bit, but mostly it has, it has to be their passion, I guess, if it's something you know well, <laughs> like shipping. Uh, or, or it can be curiosity, like... Uh, you take the esports bit, and to be honest, I I, I was working for for Tula Trim at the time, and I was put in as a board member. I didn't really understand it. I was there to kind of make sure that nothing went wrong, and then I uh, I get to learn more about the business, and I see these great people who you know started without any financial backing, and are uh, and I guess are are creating an industry that doesn't exist, uh, and and that got me intrigued enough, and I I think I started understanding some models and. Yeah, you mentioned some of the other things. It's um, uh, it, it, things that you either know and care about, or you're curious about, but also doing it with with good people. You know, it's uh, uh, I think that's one of the biggest joys of business is is meeting people, or getting to know people both internally, but but also um, also you get to deal with a lot of impressive, or smart, or interesting people as as customers. Uh, and I think kind of creating teams and connecting dots. Um, you every business I'm involved with, people are there's a lot of very different people, but I think it needs to be like that. Um, uh, I know what I'm okay at. I know what I don't know anything about, and then I, I try to find the people who know know something about those things. That's make it makes sense. Uh, just looking at at. Uh, esport and gaming there's a very close connection with uh, that ecosystem and the crypto ecosystem have you considered learning more about crypto or is it a field that you say that i have too much on my plate so i don't want to get involved with the crypto space right now well i tried to learn and uh, luckily we we got some of the most 
um, advanced people in Norway within Zero Zero Nation. I mean, we have um, a guy called Trimrud as, uh, as one of our talents, who I think, if not the most successful, but one of the, the most successful crypto artists in Norway. I think he sold crypto art for 20 million kroner this year. So he, he's part of our team. Um, we are working uh, very closely with, um, and he's also part of the Zero Nation family, a guy called Johnny Hertz. Uh, who's a traditional artist that's now uh, traditional contemporary artist uh, that's that's now uh, you know launching um, uh, crypto art. Um, so I'm I'm on the learning uh, thing, but it's it's all about having curious people around you um, who uh, and and what I understand is you have to be a bit more open minded because in you know I come from. A, the day business is stupid, like shipping, it, it's a ship, it costs this much, this is how much you earn, this is what it costs to operate. And there is a number, it's a mathematical number what comes out of it. I think with this, uh, this crypto art, uh, it's, uh, it's a lot more evolving and you kind of have to follow as you go along. I couldn't agree more. Uh, just final questions before we wrap up. If you look at next year, 2022, do you have any predictions or milestones you look forward to to the next year since we're ending this year soon? Um, no, I think we are we are pretty positive. I mean, if you look at how we positioned our fleet shipping wise, we have uh, all ships on index charters. Uh, not to say that we, we we perhaps don't take some cover just to get our cash break even even lower down. But we are positive to the market. I think the main arguments are uh, the third year of, of lower fleet growth consecutively. Um, I mean, in, in uh, deadweight tons added to the fleet, it's almost half next year or what we had this year. Um, then I, I think, as we talked about, that you're going to see a pickup in activity in China based on um, stimulus that's happening now, which will start to take effect in, in Q1, Q2, uh, the end of the Olympics, and, and I guess the end of winter, so people have some power to run their steel mills. Um, and, and I guess what am I looking forward to? I'm hoping that by next year, we will have paid back everything that was put into the company so that uh, the people who came in and supported every equity offering have gotten all their money back. Um, that will depend on the market. But if we've done that by, by 2022, I think we'll be very happy. And then I hope we, if, 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 if we get the curveball and something bad happens in the market, that, um, that we will show again that we have the lowest cash break even in the industry and we're able to take cover and, and we'll you know, protect the company until the market comes back again. Is it fair to say that the likelihood of you selling the company is higher in a great market, but it shouldn't really be like that if you had to be... Uh, blunt about when it's the right time to buy ships. You should really buy ships in low parts of the cycle, not high, but still you tend to buy in, in good times. Um, for someone to buy, I guess it's probably more likely because credit is generally looser in uh, uh, in a good market. And in a good market, maybe you have uh, other companies that are trading at the premium and, and, and they could... Uh, Bios with the currency, but we don't really. If if it comes, we can respond very quickly, but we, we don't sit around waiting for it. Day to day, we focus on running the ships, and if someone comes, we'll we'll give a quick answer. That's perfect ending, Magnus. Thank you so much for for joining. It was a pleasure having you on again.
Thank you. It's nice to be here. Hi, everyone. Christopher here again. Just a few things before you leave the show. If you like this episode, it would be great if you could give it a review and also share it with your professional network. If you want to get in touch with me, Twitter is the place. Just go to at Chris Wunheim. You can also find this information in the show notes. Hope to see you tune in to the next episode and take care.